Well, happy Father's Day. <laughs> I watched that video like four times this last week, and now I'm all choked up. <laughs> why, why is that? Well, good morning, and happy Father's Day. Uh, we're told that some, uh, some 165 years before Jesus was born, a Jewish mother and her seven young adult children faced extreme trial, yet remained faithful to God even though they suffered state-sanctioned persecution uh, along with the rest of the Jewish people because of their customs and their faith in God. Uh, this story of faith is told at the end of the ancient writing called 4th Maccabees. And the father has died, and the mother reminds her children of their father's teaching. And I want to excerpt it. I'm going to cut out some of the citation of the verses, but the mother says, he, while he was still with you, taught you the law and the prophets. He read to you of Abel, slain by Cain, of Isaac, offered as an offering, of Joseph in prison. He spoke to you of the zeal of Phinehas, taught you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. He reminded you of Isaiah's words. He sang to you David's psalms. He recited Solomon's proverbs. He declared the word of Ezekiel and sang the song that Moses taught. And it just impressed me. I was reminded of that this week because that father was remembered as modeling a devout faith in God. And that devotion to God is epitomized in the family and how they are characterized in their devotion to the Lord. Now, if we move fast forward, that was 165 years before Jesus that's set in that time. But if we move to the first century, the time of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and then the beginnings of the early church, Paul, Peter, the book of Acts, and then later into that first century, we come across some testimonies to the Jewish people and their faith. For example, and this comes from a Jewish writer, his name is Philo, he was a philosopher in Alexandria, he wrote many, many writings and referenced uh, even to non-believing peoples, uh, their, the, the distinctions of the Jewish faith. He says, all peoples guard their customs, but this is especially true of the Jewish nation. We Jews hold that our laws are from God, oracles entrusted to our care. We are trained in them from childhood, and we carry these commandments with us 
wherever we go. They are enshrined in our souls. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he was captured in the Jewish war by the Romans, and uh, he looked to the Vespasian, who, who was the conqueror, uh, became his benefactor. He wrote all of his histories. We know things about the first century because of the writings of Josephus. They're invaluable to us. He wrote a letter to Appian, and we have that letter, and in it he writes, speaking of the Jewish people, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children, and we regard faithfulness to our inherited laws and their practices to be the most important task in life. And he later then says, the law in Deuteronomy 6, 9 and eleven twenty requires us to teach our children to read and to learn both the laws and the deeds of our forefathers. He goes on to say that most people, when it comes to living by their own laws, hardly know them. And he's comparing himself with other peoples. But should anyone of our nation be questioned about our laws, we can repeat them all the more easily than we can our own names. For we are grounded in them from childhood. We have our laws engraved on our souls. Now, the interesting thing, we have the kind of this, you know, heritage that I'm trying to paint a picture of from actual sources over a span of years that's alive in the very times that our New Testament is written. And it is during this time that we have a writer his name is Seneca. He was a senator of Rome. He was the tutor of Nero. We've all heard of Nero or Nero. We name our dogs after him. He was his tutor, and then after he became the emperor of Rome, which was the emperor of the entire Mediterranean, and in many ways, most of the civilized world, Seneca was his close advisor. And he says this, Jews, however, are aware of their origin and the meaning of their rights. Most other peoples go through a ritual, ritual not knowing why they do it. He He's not a fan of the Jews. They actually annoy him, but he has to admire the fact that they know where they come from, they know who they are, and they know why they do what they do. He says, I've got to give them that. He says, most of us, the majority of Everyone else, when they go for, through a rite, they don't even know why they do what they do. They know who they are and why they do what they do. And, of course, it's Jews who are the followers of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Jesus is a Jew. This reflects his upbringing. All of the first disciples are Jews, the people of God. All of the people that made up the earliest church and then at the persecution of, of Stephen and his martyrdom in Acts 7, out of that persecution, those Jews are spread into different enclaves of Jews around the Roman Empire, and the church is scattered. And many of them didn't have churches to go to because the church hadn't spread yet. So they went to synagogues, and they worshiped Jesus, the Messiah, the one that every Jew was waiting for, the Elijah, the prophet to come, would foretell of the Messiah's coming. And then we'd know that's John the Baptist. And it is then James who is writing to these who have been scattered It is to them that he says these words which we are going to read. And he wants them, listen, this is very important. He wants them to know who they are in Christ and why they do what they do. The neat thing about the video is that, you know what, if a dad in Christ, a mom in Christ, a kid in Christ, a friend in Christ, if you just keep your eyes on Jesus and know who you are in Christ, and you live that out as best you can, you're going to know who you are and why you do what you do. It isn't rocket science. You know, that doesn't mean that we don't want to get educated or do the best we can or grow in our understanding or become more and more proficient in the Word of God. But ultimately, this Messiah is for everyone, not just the high and mighty, not just the educated or those with advanced degrees, not those who are captains of industry or make lots of money or the pretty people. Everybody. We call that grace. In Jesus, these to whom James is writing, these are the first believers, and they belong to a new covenant that we celebrate when we take the bread and the cup. Jesus said to his very first, his intimate circle of disciples, those that he called to follow him. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is a new day, a new people, a new work of God that fulfills and complements and completes the work of God of, of the Old Testament. This is not a tired work of God. This is not a warmed-up work of God. 
This is not a leftover work of God. This is a new work of God. And you, even as we saw in James last week, you are the new creation of that. The first fruits of God's new work. That's what James says. He gets it. That new covenant informs who they are. It is the fulfillment of God's work and the prophetic word of the Old Testament. It tells us who we are and why we do what we do. And that covenant is a covenant of love, grace, and mercy. My father, I'm not sure I could call him a religious man, He was a good man, a moral man, but he was not a merciful man. He was a man of morality, but not mercy. There are churchgoers who are churchgoers of morality, but not mercy. Churches can be some of the most moral places you can find and some of the most unmerciful because of it. Do not get them confused. And this is very much a part of James' message here in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I hope you'll look into your Bibles as I read from the English Standard Version. Uh, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby, the word actually means filthy, clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, please, uh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called if you really fulfill the law the royal law according to the true the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to those or the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying, if I just kind of digest and translate this, faith, our faith in Jesus, shows to others the grace that God shows to us. Who are we and why do we do what we do? Because God, in his acts of grace through Jesus Christ, has said to us, lay aside guilt and shame because of your unworthiness, because of your wrongdoings, of your faults, of your crimes. I find you acceptable. I welcome you in Christ in the name of Jesus. It's a new beginning. But make no mistake, it's not a life of morality. It's not a life of laws. It's a life of grace, mercy, because of love. And when you love, yes, you will find that you live what people will call a moral life. But it will be a merciful life. It'll be a tender-hearted life. It'll be a forgiving life, a caring life, a kind life. It'll be the kind of life that associates with those who are the little, the left behind, the lost, because that is the love that God has shown us. Look at verse 1 again. What, what James says right here really deserves reflection. What he is saying is our faith in Jesus Christ is incompatible with partiality, favoritism, and prejudice. Our faith, you cannot believe in Jesus, he says. He says that to me as much as he says it to any of us here. You cannot hold that faith. You cannot claim faith in Jesus if you show partiality, prejudice, personal preference, because that is not grace. And that's the message of what he says in verses 2 through 12. Here he shows that our faith includes those that favoritism excludes. Our faith honors those that favoritism dishonors. And our faith admits what favoritism forgets. In verses 2 through 5, he tells a story, a celebrity and a nobody. 
the celebrity comes in. Oh, isn't that so-and-so? Let's usher him to the best of seats. Well, that's fine. But then the nobody over here, whether we do it directly or otherwise, the fact that we ignore that person or they're not treated of the, of the same, then it is, as he points out in this story, it's like saying, um, stand at my feet or sit over here in the cheap seats. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, Nathan comes to the king, king David. He tells him a poor parable. He says there was a poor man who had one sheep, and he raised that little sheep, and he fed it. It slept in his arms. He loved it like a child. It was his little sheep. There was a rich man across the road. <laughs> he had flocks and flocks of sheep. And when a guest came, he had to slay a lamb to feed the guest to be a good host. But he didn't want to slay any of his own. So he sent a servant across the road to steal the one sheep of the poor man. As Nathan told the story to David, David got so angry. He said, Tell me who that man is. I want him arrested right away. We're going to punish him. I'm going to demand a fourfold punishment of what he has done. And Nathan says, you are the man. Sometimes it's a parable or a story that helps us to see what others are doing but if we realize the importance of the story, it's to point out what we ourselves do. You know, that's, that's where we begin when we realize our need for what God gives us in Jesus Christ. And when he gives it so freely and we realize we're unworthy, then we experience, we taste, we breathe that sweet scent of grace and it changes our heart if we just calculate it if it's an intellectual exercise of what God does in other people's lives we'll never experience that grace for ourselves if we don't see ourselves you are the woman you are the man if that doesn't label us, then we never understand that grace. And we've got to understand it. We've got to experience it. In order to show that faith as grace toward others. He says in verse 4, he says, if you treat people like this, if you discriminate, if you treat them differently by virtue of differences that you see. These are not differences that God sees, or else is God's grace discriminating? Is it just for some? Who are they? that his grace 
says you are disqualified. He says if you're discriminating, you're judging. You're making yourself a judge. And he says you're a judge that's biased, a judge that's prejudiced. You're a bad judge, which is the worst kind of judge. No one wants their case tried before a judge who's not even-handed, not fair, not just. Who wants to play with loaded dice? You bet your life, but the dice are not level. Who wants to be cheated? James, in different words, is saying, we're cheaters. If we're withholding the grace of God, it's not ours to withhold. If we have experienced that grace. Here's the reason. He says, God has chosen, not excluded the poor to be rich in faith. Do you see that? Verse 5. Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In other words, the poor represent everyone who realizes how impoverished he is in the presence of God before God. We are of the world in the sense the lost, the least, and the last. That's who the poor are. We've all been given the right to be rich in faith, heirs, of the kingdom. Show to others the grace that God has shown to you. That is impartial love, grace, and mercy that was shown to Israel, but now is shown to the world in Jesus Christ. He is the judge. It is not our place to police this. It's our job to show it. We are not the spigots of God's work in Jesus Christ. It's not our place to be at the helm of who opens the spigot and allows just a little out. Here, stick your tongue under there. I'll squeeze a drop on for you because God has put me in charge of his salvation. No, he says, we're disqualified because when the rich come in, when the celebrities show up, we're all. That's the pull of the world. That's the pull of the world's value system. That's the pull of its economy. And it does work on us day in and day out. Here was a father who gave to his family his heart for the Lord. 
But I'll tell you, in this world, that's hard because we're all on our devices. We're all on our knees before the social media of this world with its values. Values. What it says is important. Who it elevates. Who it says counts. Who it says is somebody. Who it says matters. And that is a pull on all of us. But if we know who we are and why we do what we do, if we would give that some space, more space than we give it, and not just play on Sunday, but during each and every day. If we were just to reflect on the grace of God, reflect on the death of Jesus, what Christ has done for us, it would shape our hearts. It would shape our hearts. As I said, this is not a new grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, we're told the Lord your God is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes, executes just justice. That is, he does mishpat. He does justice. And then it's explained. Justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then this in verse 19. This is the command. Love the sojourner. That is, the stranger Love the sojourner for, why? Can you complete the sentence? For you yourselves were sojourners. This is God's law to his people. He is in the business of forming a people for himself. They later, as we quoted, can be called a nation of people when they did or didn't have a homeland because they were united in one law, the law of the heart. And this is very much a part of that law. He says to Israel, you were not a people of privilege. You were not elite. I chose you. You were the least of the nations. So now it's your job to show that love to the sojourner. Love the sojourner. For, why do we do what we do? Why are we who we are? Because you were a sojourner. That's what James is saying here. Faith honors those that favoritism dishonors. In verses 5 and 6, as I said, the poor stand for the least, the last, and the lost. If God has chosen the poor, he has, in effect, started at the bottom. In other words, no one is left out of the purview of his grace. And this was illustrated back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Now, just think about this for a minute. And it, you may recall, that's the first place uh, James says, the poor are lifted up, and the rich are demoted. What, what's he talking about there? And I have to admit, this, was, this is confusing to me. 
I did the best I could with it at the time, but I've continued to meditate on it. And here's my insight that I feel like the Lord has shown me. If you are invited, just imagine you got an invitation. You got an invitation to an afternoon at God's palace. And you are a rich person. You are really rich. But God, well, that's another level, right? So when the rich go to God's house, they're humbled, aren't they? They have to realize their low station because that's God. And what about the poor person, the poor person that's forgotten? If you get this invitation, how are you going to feel? Wow, God, you're elevated. See, the rich in his little puddle, he's, he's top dog. He's the guy who calls the shots, pushes other people around. He's a power broker. Other people serve him, but not, not when he goes to God's house. And the same with the poor. The poor, they're nobody, have no rights. They're the people that are pushing. Well, all of a sudden, though, you get an invitation to God's house, you're elevated. James then says, how ironic is it that you elevate the rich to the neglect, disregard, and mistreatment of the poor when God has no value system like that? And he says, these are the very people. He says, it's just ludicrous. It's ironic that you would treat them that way when these are the same people that would drag you into court. But boy, when they're in your presence, when you have a chance to climb the ladder, you just slobber all over yourselves, just climbing over each other to be in that person's good graces. You forget who you are. So if we dishonor the last, the least, and the lost, we dishonor our own salvation. We dishonor and devalue what is so precious, the grace of God. And there's something really wrong. Something stinks. I mean, it, it smells real bad in the church. When that taints the grace of God, and it, our faith admits what favoritism forgets. And what it admits is grace. We have to admit grace, God's grace. We have to say it wasn't me. It was the love, the grace, the mercy of God. So how can I regulate that grace, that mercy? In fact, it's my job to grow and learn and become mature in understanding how that grace not only works on me, but works through me. He says in verse 8 through 13, he speaks about the royal law. That's a reference to the Messiah. That's a reference to the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. He says if you, if you do the royal law, and he just focuses here on the neighbor, you see, as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Think about this just a moment. This is, this is fundamental theology. This is fundamental Christianity. You don't need to know a whole lot more if you know this. If you do this law, if you love your neighbor, and your neighbor isn't just the people that live on your left, right, and across the street, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will be expressing grace because you love yourself so much that if you treated others as you yourself want to be treated, you would show them generosity and goodness and favor that they normally don't get from you or from me. I'm just being brutally honest. At least I'm using myself as a gauge. I am a very selfish person. We both come to grips with our sinfulness when we realize how selfish we are, how we are always at the center of everything, that the world revolves around us. We look at everything through our viewpoint. And you see, that is where preference and prejudice and personal favor come from where we put ourselves first. In verses um, 9 through 11, he makes a case. It's, uh, he strings it along. He basically wants to say partiality is sin. He, makes, he, he supports the point of verse 9. Partiality is sin, and the law condemns it. So if you're going to, you know, live by the law, if that's that what really rules your, your life, then uh, you're not going to understand this grace. You're not going to be merciful. You're going to be moral, that's for sure, but you won't be merciful. But he says in verse 12, he says, otherwise we should speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that gives freedom. That's the grace of God in Christ, our new law. And then notice verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. A real quick minute. I want to encourage you today to read Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Or this week, okay? It's Father's Day. Never mind. Don't read it today, but this week. And then Another, I want you to read this parable that Jesus said. It's from Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. And I'm just going to remind you of the heart of it. Um, this, this senior servant owed the king uh, just an astronomical amount of money. And the king called the servant in to pay up. He's settling accounts. He says, you owe me this astronomical amount of money, and you've got to pay up. And the slave falls on his face. He begs. He begs. Please, don't throw me in jail. I'm a father. I have a wife. I have children. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Just give me more time. I'll be dutiful. I'll, be, I'll meet the debt. I'll pay you off. I'll be lawful about it, right? I'll do the right thing. And the king says, forget it. 
I'm just going to forgive the whole debt. You've touched my heart. I pity you. I have mercy on you. That's really what he says. I'm showing you mercy. I'm, I'm canceling the debt. Here, and he rips it up in two pieces, and he hands it to the slave, the servant. He says, can you imagine how he felt? That close to losing it all, and then walking out of there with the canceled debt in his hand, and he bumps into a fellow slave, a guy just like him. He owes him like 20 bucks, and he says, pay up right now. And the other slave says, oh, you caught me at a bad moment. I can't do it right now. He says, look, give me time. I'll pay you back. He says, I've got a wife, a kids, please. He says, forget it, and throws him in jail. Well, the king hears about this. The king hears about this. He says, go find that guy. Bring him in here. He says, forget it. Yeah, but I've got the canceled debt. He says, you have no mercy for someone? In fact, this is exactly what he says. Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I mean, wouldn't we all agree? If we were a crowd and this was a big sporting event, we'd all be cheering for this. You should have shown mercy. You were shown way more mercy than you could ever conceive. And his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay. See, he wanted to live by the law. So he says, go, go. Put him in jail until you pay it off. He'll never pay it off. He'll never pay it off. Then Jesus adds these words, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, from your heart. See, that's where the transaction takes. You can have it up here. You can have it on a piece of paper. No, you canceled the debt. I've got the paper right here. Here, I've got the verses. I put all the verses together. We're going to wave that in front of God? Is that our excuse for not being merciful? Is that our excuse for not knowing his grace in a way that touches our heart, that changes the transactions of our lives. Sure, we're going to sin, we're going to fail, but we'll get up on our feet and we'll say, I'm sorry, let me do that over again. We won't become hardened in the law and the rejection of grace and mercy. We'll become tenderized, and our lives will be changed with every step and every choice. Listen to one more thing. I need to get this, you know, I have an exercise app on my watch, and I can push it if I'm going to run or do a stair step, but there's no preaching on there. <laughs> Luke 6, 27 through 30, uh, 36, but just this verse right at the end. 
love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing back, then your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. You'll be children of the Father. That's Father's Day talk. You'll be a chip off the old block because he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Not just the deserving, whom we as bad judges are not really good at judging. And then he says to us, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The last words of James, he says, boast in mercy. Mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wanted to give you that image because I, I remember that fight. That was, that's my, he's saying, don't look to the law. Don't look to your privilege. If you want to boast over someone that you've defeated, then find your power in the mercy of God. That is his might. Let me uh, pray for us. Will you stand? Uh, this morning, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord, if you do not know his forgiveness, if you have not tasted his grace, I invite you to come. We're going to be down here to pray with any who come. I, uh, I do believe that all of us uh, need to walk by faith with respect to showing God's grace to others that we ourselves have tasted. So our prayer this morning, O oh Lord, is that you might manifest in our lives your power, your mercy that triumphs over judgment that we might be people of grace and love and mercy and that others might say there goes Jesus we pray this in Jesus name and all of God's people said God bless you